Welcome to the Leading by History podcast, where we seek to take our listeners on a journey through history, highlighting information which is most crucial for changing our world, one episode at a time. Welcome back to the Leading by History podcast. I'm your host, Masayahu Israul, and today we've got a really informative show. We've got Dr. Fatima Fanusi, who is uh, with us today, graduate in history from Howard University, where she received her, her doctorate in history. And uh, I wanted to talk to her today about her dissertation, which deals with the Ahmadiyya. Uh, movement's influence on Farad Muhammad and the Nation of Islam, I think that there is some really important information to pull out, especially since we have been working on the last several shows called The Black Gods. And this will be a type of culmination of that show so that all the information that you've gained thus far can really come to fruition now with thinking about some of these movements in some different ways. So we bring to the show Dr. Fatima Fanusi. Welcome to Leading by History. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm honored and happy to be here. Thanks. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you got into this research. So um, I've been doing research on the development of Islam in America in some form or fashion since my undergraduate years. And uh, both of my parents came into Islam through the Nation of Islam as college students uh, in 1970 and 1971. And um, I think the direct catalyst for me, and I shared this with you in a previous conversation, but the direct catalyst for me was uh, during a year abroad at the American University of Cairo. I was taking a, I wasn't a history major at the time, I was actually a biology pre-med major, and I was taking a course called uh, Islam in the West, a seminar, and they had a section of the course called Islam in America, and on the first day, I got the syllabus, I looked through it quickly, and I was scanning the syllabus looking for some mention of the Nation of Islam and the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and to my surprise, I didn't see any mention of either. So, of course, I go to the library, um, the university library, and I look for um, C. Eric Lincoln's book, and I didn't see anything on Islam. And, you know, um, uh, Lincoln's book came out in the 60s, as did Ethan Udom. So these were books that, you know, had been written decades ago. And so I went from there to a payphone on campus, and I'm dating myself because it was a payphone, not a cell phone. And... Um, I called mm -hmm. home, and that collect call became legendary because we were on the phone for hours, and my father sent me a copy of C. Eric Lincoln's The Black Muslims in America um, via airmail, which I received the next week, and the rest is, you know, kind of history. Um, from that mm -hmm. point on, I was always engaged in some form or fashion of uh, working on the history and trying to explicate the history of how Islam came to be established as a religion here in the United States and especially among African Americans. So, you know, an interesting history with us both is that we both went to undergrad together at Lincoln University, dear old orange and blue. Hail, hail Lincoln, yeah. We always had uh, 
informative conversations. Myself, your sister went there, and even even your father, when he used to come through the campus, we used to have conversations. And so it's very interesting that, you know, you have a Muslim and you have a Jew, right? (laughs) Uh, What they would deem a, a black Muslim or in a black Jew or Muslim and Jew of color and we have have this long history together, and then we both ended up being historians. So that's pretty interesting to me. So when I was preparing to start doing some uh, work on Farad and uh, Farad Muhammad, who's the founder of Allah's Temple of Islam, which later became the Nation of Islam, you know, I'm doing some searching and stuff, and I came across this name, uh, Dr. Fatima Fanusi, and I said, oh, okay, let me check out, and I saw a video and I said, wait a minute, she looks extremely familiar, but Fanusi, I don't know any Fanusis. And then I, yeah, I dug a little deeper and saw the Abdul Tawab and I said, ah, that's who it is. And when I came across your information and reached out to you, I was really interested in the work that you had done on the history of W. Farad Muhammad, who was considered by the Nation of Islam to be God in person, Allah in person, the savior. He holds a high place in the nation of Islam, even at at this time. But to see that you had done research that showed some connections back to India, some connections to what is called the Ahmadiyya movement, etc. Can you, first of all, tell us who was Farad Muhammad? We talked a little bit about him on the podcast doing our Black Godism series, but can you tell us a little bit about Farad Muhammad, uh, maybe the variety of, of names that he had, and, you know, why is the information about Farad important? So, so who's Farad, and why is it important to know about him anyway when studying the history of Islam? So um, <laughs> that's a question, to be honest, that I'm, I'm still pursuing, um, but I guess I'd have to say a few things. Number one, of course, is that Farad, as you mentioned, was the founder of the Allah Temple of Islam, which later came to be known as the Lost Foundation of Islam in the wilderness of North America, and which most of us know today as the Nation of Islam. So the other part of that is, and most scholars have alluded to this or just talked about it, um, or characterized Farad as mysterious. Farad came with a mission and a purpose, but part of his mission was that he was mysterious, that people did not really know his biographical um, background, heritage, or identity. So I'm actually still in the process of attempting to explicate who Farad was, even biologically. But I think the thing that it's important to know for anyone who may be new to this or who may not have any familiarity with Islam in America, Farad, the Nation of Islam, et cetera, is that Farad was the founder. Almost everyone has heard of the Nation of Islam. If they haven't, everyone's heard of Al-Hajj Malik Shabazz or Malcolm X or Muhammad Ali or, you know, um, or the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. But Farad is the guy who basically founded the organization, um, the Nation of Islam. He's the person who introduced the doctrines of the Nation of Islam, the lessons, the catechism, the mythology, however you want to spin it. But Farad is the person who's responsible for introducing that to Elijah Muhammad and others and for creating the movement that we know today as the Nation of Islam. Um, Indeed. I also, I also think it's important to recognize that 
fraud has also been credited by at least one scholar, Richard Brent Turner, and, and I think correctly, rightly so, he's been credited as being an Islamic missionary and the most important figure in the history of Islamic development in, in America. And I think you can say period or full stop after that. I know people often like to talk about the history of Islam Islam among enslaved West Africans, which definitely existed. But, you know, Islam is a religion of the book. It's a literary religion. And as we know, most African Muslims, even if they were able to retain their faith during their lifetime and pass on some of it to any of their children, offspring, spouses, etc., it did not survive intact as a religion through American chattel slavery. So I think Farad is someone who was really largely responsible for bringing Islam as a religion to Americans. In your research, you talk about this Ahmadiyya movement and its impact on Farad. Tell us about the early Ahmadiyya movement. What is the Ahmadiyya movement and why you believe that it was this movement that gave birth to Farad? So what I'm saying actually is that Farad Muhammad was an Ahmadiyya missionary and that he came up with the program and the movement that became the Nation of Islam. I would emphasize or stress that he came up with that independently of the Ahmadiyya movement itself. But as I explain a little bit about who the Ahmadiyya will, are, you'll, that, that statement will make more sense. And we definitely have to start with the Ahmadiyya, I think. That's one of the things that uh, my research has illustrated and I'm trying to get across to readers and to people that I come in contact with. But the Ahmadiyya played a, um, I'll put it this way. I've examined the Ahmadiyya as the missing link in the narrative of American religious cultures opening to Islam in the 20th century. So what I'm saying there is that if you really want to understand how Islam developed in the United States, you have to understand who the Ahmadi were and then at what, what they were doing in America. And I, I'm trying to think of a way to quickly summarize. Oh, so I could talk about the Ahmadi in the context of Islamic modernism. I could also talk about the Ahmadiyya in the context of Asian and African responses to European colonialism. Or I could spend significant time focusing on them as a group pioneering a balanced response to colonization within Muslim society. But to really do justice to our topic today and to W.D. Farad Muhammad, I'd rather focus on the Ahmadiyya's pivotal role in, as I said before, opening American religious culture to Islam and Islamic development in 20th century United States. And I guess there are two ways to approach this, or two things that I think any novice or a person who doesn't know that much about the Ahmadiyya should understand. One, the Ahmadiyya should be recognized as pioneering Islamic modernism. And what I mean by this is if you take Christianity, commerce, commercial development, and civilization, and what were known as the three Cs, um, during the, uh, I guess, heyday of British Empire. I would put those three C's as a framework for attempting to understand who the Ahmadiyya were. The Ahmadiyya were established at the end of the 19th century by an Indian Muslim named uh, Ghulam Ahmed, who's referred to as Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, and Mirza is just an honorific title in Urdu. So Mirza Ghulam Ahmed founded the movement, and he did so because he understood himself 
and his supporters as having a, a message and a mission that would benefit the world at the time that they were living. The reason I mentioned the three C's is because Gulam Ahmed is responding to the Western European um, quest to reconcile faith with reason during the 19th century, or what some scholars like to refer to as the Victorian faith crisis. And that was basically a question of how do we reconcile faith and scripture, biblical scripture, with science and rational thinking? And this was a question that was being addressed by scholars coming out of the German-led higher criticism movement. And I guess, again, to get in and out, um, what's pertinent to the, the discussion here is that they were questioning the doctrines of Trinitarianism and the doctrines of atonement. And on a side note, I think it's interesting that this movement comes out of the same area literally that the Reformation itself, you know, that same soil that the Reformation itself sprung up on. But um, Ghulam Ahmed is, before he even creates the Ahmadiyya movement, again, this is around, we're talking, he was a young man in the 1860s and 1870s. And he was responding to Christian missionaries in India. And that's why I mentioned the three C's, Christianity, commercial, um, commerce, and, and civilization. Many Europeans thought that the three went hand in hand, and so that when they were colonizing African and, and, and Asian people and, and nations and populations, they were actually helping them out by delivering Christianity to non-Christian people, by helping the economy and commerce and industry of the different European societies, and by bringing them so-called civilization. But, at the, but the, at the same time they were doing this, they were bringing a very uh, literate and fundamentalist reading of the Bible. So Gulam Ahmed and the, the, the friends of his, the supporters who would eventually form the basis of his movement, were struck with the irony of the most, I guess, erudite or scholarly minds coming out of uh, European theological schools um, and uh, embarking on intellectual inquiry as religious scholars. They were struck by the irony of those folks questioning whether Christianity was even fit to take, fit for modernity, basically. You had Christian missionaries coming to the shores of Africa and Asia and attempting to convert the people there to Christianity. It, not what uh, higher criticism scholars would call a, an enlightened form of Christianity, but a very literal reading of the Bible that did not, in, in, in their own words, make sense or, or couldn't be reconciled with, with faith and, and reason. So Ahmed is doing this, and he's physically, like, literally getting into debates with Christian missionaries. And remember, many of these European missionaries were fluent in, in Hindu, Hindi, um, uh, Urdu, uh, Arabic, and, you know, the different languages of the people that were attempting to colonize. So he, Ghulam Ahmed is not fluent in English but most of his immediate supporters were. So Ghulam Ahmed is having actual, engaging in oral debates around these topics. And again, this is when he's a very young man in his 20s. And he, these debates affect him or influence him deeply. And between, um, I'd say 1868 until 1880, when he publishes his Magnus Opus, Barahina Ahmadi, or a book called The, the Proof of Ahmed, during that time, he's engaging in deep study of the Quran and other scriptures. And he comes to the conclusion that he basically has in the Quran the answer to all of the problems of all human populations, all human societies during this moment in the 19th century. And again, you know, this is a moment where, you know, industry is, is 
changing at a dizzying speed. In the 19th century, you'll see the steam engine, the telegraph, so many new in innovations or inventions that affect the world and also bring it together more. And then the other thing you have is print media. So that's the other thing that I look at in my research. And again, this is directly related to who the Ahmadiyya are. Once the movement is officially established, which is, I think, in 1889, but I, I, I don't remember, the Ahmadiyya make it their business to monitor all print media that is coming out of Europe and the West, basically Europe and North America. And they are responding to it in writing, at least the articles that are translated into Urdu and, and the publications that are local by missionaries and Christian schools and, and those uh, types of institutions and organizations that are rapidly multiplying on Indian soil at this time. By the end of the 19th century, and, and again, this goes directly to who the Ahmadiyya are, Ghulam Ahmed has put out a call throughout all of India for learned Muslims to come to Kadian, India, which is where he lives, the, the village that he lives in. And he basically establishes a new school of thought. And um, you don't hear too much about this because the Ahmadiyya are actually considered outside of the pale of Islam by most Muslims. And as a result, most scholarship deals with the Ahmadiyya in the same manner. But at that time, what I think is important for our purposes is to know that no matter what others thought of Ahmed and his burgeoning organization, he put out a call, and the call was responded to by Muslims from across the country. And the Muslims who responded were some of the most you know, erudite, some of the most deeply, um, uh, not just degreed and, and credentialed, but they were just deep thinkers. So, and there were people who were recognized and accepted as Muslims within their own communities. But these folks came to Qadian, and it, at, in Qadian, he developed, he, you know, they build a masjid, a, a mosque, um, a school, uh, they establish a printing press, basically everything you need to have your own little think tank or, like I said, school of thought or madhab. And they emerge as the pioneering uh, group of, of Muslim modernists in the late 19th and into the 20th century. So, so this is who the Ahmadiyya are. This is a little bit of background are on them. And the reason that they become important in our context is because of their dual or two-fold um, purpose or mission. And the mission was to protect and defend Islam, both internally and externally. So I, I, the thing I really want to get across before we leave Ahmadiyya and return to Farah is that the Ahmadiyya emerged as missionaries responding to the missionary movement that Christians, European Christians had initiated. The Ahmadiyya conceived of a global missionary plan that they would actually follow up on. So the same way Europeans were spreading Christianity across the globe through the different missionary societies and organizations, Ahmed developed a plan to do the exact same thing. And as part of this plan, he's chastising Muslims for sitting on their laurels for so many centuries and not doing a thing, to the point where he even at one point, Ahmed says, he's writing and he's pretty angry, and he says, don't you know, and I'm paraphrasing him, of course, I'm not looking at anything right now, but he says, don't you know that the, the Christians, the European Christians and the American Christians have the lay people doing the missionary work, not, not just their ordained clergy, but the lay people. They are sending the lay people to Asia and Africa to missionize, and you guys are doing nothing. So he's attempting to shame the Muslim world, and he's also saying that the status of the Muslim world increasingly as colonized people is a direct result of them not following the Quran. What Ghulam Ahmed was saying was, look, 
not only are we not subjugated to or inferior to any so-called alleged progress among Europeans, but the entire Industrial Revolution, the entire uh, European Enlightenment, the entire, everything that we're looking at as science and progress has come out of the Quranic Revolution. So this is what Ahmed is arguing in his book, in his own language, and this is what missionaries and um, religious Europeans who were literate in his languages are, are privy to. From what I see is and, and hear from what you're saying, is that it's almost as if this Ghulam Ahmad, the founder of this Ahmadiyya movement, has somewhat of a religious nationalism. He's attacking imperialism, colonialism by European powers, but he's fighting it with Islam. What's interesting is that most of the Islamic leaders that uh, begin in America at the turn of the 20th century and early 20th century also have some form of nationalistic Islam or nationalistic religious uh, ideology. So that's very interesting. But what we're going to do is we're going to take a brief break. And when we come back, we're going to uh, get back to talking about uh, Farad and some of the things that, that he did and, and possibly how the Ahmadiyya movement helped him to formulate some of these ideas. We'll be right back. All right, we're back, and we were talking about the Ahmadiyya movement. We were talking about Ghulam Ahmad and and some of the history there. Um, I, I did want to to get too heavy into the history of that movement, but it's something that the listeners should definitely go and research because it's important to know who they were and what their their influential power was, not just for their country, but how over time they began to, to step out and to do a type of proselytization worldwide. But now, what connections are there which give a keen insight into the, the Ahmadiyya influence on Farad and his nation of Islam? How do you make those connections? What do you see in Farad that, that comes from the Ahmadiyya movement? Two things. One is what I mentioned at the beginning of this talk was that Farad was mysterious, and he's been memorialized as mysterious by scholars of the Nation of Islam and, and, and those looking at Farad. But he was mysterious because he wanted to be. So there are not obvious links to the Ahmadiyya. But what there are, and what I'd like to talk about briefly, if we have the time, is that there are links that can be noted by researchers who are looking, you know, and I think that's probably why I got carried away and started to go into the weeds a minute ago, but there are, are links that can be noted by researchers uh, between the Ahmadiyya and Farad. And what I mean by that, or an example of that would be language. Language to me is the primary link that I have used to connect Farad to the Ahmadiyya movement. And when we were talking a few minutes ago, I was talking about the Ahmadiyya monitoring American uh, print 
media. Well, what I didn't get to say is that in the 20th century, I mean, this was a, pro a plan that was they were working on from 1900 until the first journal actually was published in 1903, but they were working on developing their own English uh, journal, English language journal. And they had many uh, journals that they printed before then, but in their own languages. But 1903, with the Review of Religion, you have their first journal. And this is a journal that they will send to the White House every year, um, to almost every major institution of higher learning and to m most, you know, avant-garde religious organizations and societies. And they also send it to, um, I think, the New York Public Library, Harvard, the number of institutions that the Ahmadiyya will send every issue of the journal to. And in the journal, as you said, I think you used the word nationalism. I wouldn't necessarily call Ghulam Ahmed a nationalist, although I do think that you'll have some religious nationalism, nationalism emerging from his organization after he passes. But Ghulam Ahmed was a bit more universal in his approach, and so he claimed to be talking to all of humanity. And so even though we're talking in the context of Islam and Christianity, he wasn't just talking to the Christians. Um, in his book, he's very careful that he's, he's talking to Hindus, he's talking to the Baha'i, he's talking to every religious group. And he makes the claim that he is, and this is getting to who Farad will say that he is when he gets to the United States. Ghulam Ahmed makes the claim that he is um, the Mahdi. He makes the claim that he's the Messiah. He makes the claim that he's the avatar. So you, you see the pattern. In, in his Barahini Ahmadi or Proof of Ahmed, written in 1880, he basically makes the claim that he is the religious savior for every religious people. And he's also including the agnostics and the atheists as well. He's saying, I know you're, you don't have a faith. I know you're exploring a searching, or I know you've rejected, but that's because you haven't had an answer, and, and I'm the answer. So of course, right? But that's what he's saying. The language he uses claiming to be the Mahdi and the Messiah is the same language that Farad will bring when he shows up in uh, Paradise Valley and in, in, in any of the locations that we will see him in in the United States. So language is the first marker that I'm, that I'm examining. You said language. We see the religious language of him making himself a savior. We, we see that being done of Farad, but Farad comes on the scene very low key in the beginning. And when Elijah Muhammad says, uh, reportedly by his own words, he says that he sees Farad and says, I know who you are. You know, you're the savior, the one that was promised to come. And Farad pulled him close and said, yeah, but don't tell anybody about it until after I'm gone. So right. it, it seems Farad developed into the savior afterwards, but was referred to himself as a prophet in the lessons. But what are the other connections that, because when we spoke off record, we were talking about these words like the poison book and things like that, that I see in the catechism, the lessons of the, the nation of Islam. What are some other language pieces that make a connection between the Ahmadiyya and Farad? Uh, again, going back to the Review of Religions, and these are the, the journals, and I was mainly looking at the journals between 1903, the first um, date of publication, through about 1940, which is when the movement split into two different groups. The strategy and the approach and the language of the Ahmadi themselves changes over the course of the, the, two, the two decades, if we from 1903 through actually 1920, or three decades through 1929. 
so initially the Ahmadiyya are writing about scripture and they're talking to scholars and students of Judeo-Christian religion in their reviews. And they're quite civil and they're quite engaging and they're, they're trying to make a, an argument in a, in a civilized fashion or manner, but they're trying to convince or bring the readers over to their side to understand the needs of the reader for the Holy Quran. Now, in the discussion of the Bible, they don't, they, they will, like you said, they actually will call the Bible a poison book, you know, the poison book. And they, <laughs> it's funny the way they do this because in their articles, when they talk about the Bible in their words as the poison book or a poison book, they then utilize European and um, American higher criticism scholars that their research to support their point. So uh, that, that to me kind of makes me chuckle a little bit, but that, but the language that they're using is initially conciliatory, but, and, but pleading, but once the Ahmadiyya, and I, I'm having to skip over a lot to try to make this all fit for someone who's not familiar with them, but I'll try to do it. The, their first engagement or interaction with Americans is only through the written word, through letters, and the journals and through articles. But once they actually come face to face with Americans in American in, a, in a, an American context on American soil, they come uh, to know racism in a way that they haven't experienced before. And that might sound odd since they were uh, subjects of the British Empire and they were colonized, but most of the Ahmadi at this time are from the upper class and they've actually lived in different parts of Europe. They've gone to European schools, they've been admitted into European social um, societies, and, and, and they haven't had the same problem with racism as they will encounter here in the United States. Also, they've been working for almost three decades, getting um, attempting to get Americans to convert to Islam or at least recognize the truth of the Quran. And when they fail to do that, well, then the article, the tone of the article becomes a lot more strident and less conciliatory and more uh, harsh, angry. And um, that's where you start to see, I wish I had actually pulled some of these things out. I apologize now for not doing that. But that's where you start to see the language. If these articles hadn't been written earlier, I would say the language mimics the language of the Nation of Islam, especially the lessons and, and a lot of the catechism, but these actually were published before 1930. And so we know that these came first, but you see some of the exact same um, descriptions being used by Ahmadiyya writers. For instance, I had never seen, known, because my parents came into Islam through the Nation of Islam, I was familiar with a lot of this, but I hadn't known this type of conversation outside of the Nation of Islam. So they're calling the Europeans cavies because they live mm. in caves. They're calling them uh, beasts. Article after article, they keep saying, the so-called colored man, why are you coming into Asia and Africa attempting to convert the so-called colored man? Now, they don't take the same riff on it as you're going to see in the uh, Nation of Islam doctrine, but the concept, they're saying if anyone is colored, it's, it's you, the European, with, because you've colored things with your lives. So they're, mm. they're uh, right, exactly. And so then they also talk about man meaning mind. And again, mm. these are in the articles they're writing. And that, that the poison Bible has 
poisoned the mind of the white man with mm. um right um with this ideology of white supremacy so that there is no saving them. One of the things I'm actually arguing, and this does go into how I'm attempting to link Farad to the Ahmadiyya movement, one of the things I'm actually arguing in that dissertation is that by the time you get to 1930, by the time you get to the Nation of Islam, one of the things is that the Ahmadiyya or the group of Ahmadiyya who were supporting Farad, one of the things that's happening is that they are pretty fed up with their lack of traction among Americans. Now, remember, they thought that it was going to be an easy sell. In 1914, they're writing that the American mind, and they mean white Americans, not anyone else. They're arguing that the American mind is, quote, right for conversion to Islam. And this is because of the great progress of the Unitarian movement in America, you know? And so they're thinking, okay, you guys are accepting one God, so right next to that is Islam. But when they don't make the progress that they expect to, and they come face-to-face uh, -face with the brutality of racism and the whole ideology of white supremacy in America, well, then they start to backpedal and they start to now criticize white America itself. And that's the language that to me was jarringly and shockingly similar to what I knew to be the nation of Islam uh, doctrine and and catechism. And so that's where I think most of the similarities exist. So what I would like to know is, what is the impact of what Farad created in black religion or black Islam or what I term black godism? What's the impact of Farad on this American ethnic Islam? And then what impact does Farad have on black nationalism? Do you see Farad having an impact on black Islam, as I term it, or the black godism? And does he have an impact also on black nationalism from his message and what he's pulling from what you believe to be the Ahmadiyya movement? So, yes, of course. I mean, it might seem odd for me to say this, but to me, there, there's a bit of chicken and egg, um, the chicken and egg phenomenon going on. Because, again, if, if we stick with, with just for, you know, sake of our, our discussion today, if we stick with my thesis or approach that Karat is actually an Ahmadiyya, well, the Ahmadi and Farad studied African-American religious culture. Like, I mean, they, they studied it like they were, they were about to, you know, do, the, do their own uh, uh, doctorate on the, the topic. I mean, they were really studying it. They were monitoring every, every type of writing and journal that was coming out of any of our institutions. So, I mean, these guys are, when they're writing, they're into, I mean, they're quoting from, you know, Bishop Henry McNeil Turner. They're quoting from uh, Booker T. Washington. Uh, you know, they're, I mean, they're, because those are the people who would have actually been published. Uh, Martin Delaney, uh, they're, they're, they are, um, they are quoting from the, what is it, the North Star, the, the different publications, the, the, free, the recorder, from the the AME Church, I mean, they are they are heavily engaged in all of these. But again, they find that educated elite African African Americans do not accept Islam either. They actually say at some point, we notice there's no hope for white America anymore, and there's no hope for educated Negroes or whatever. Or, yes, I think that the educated American Negro, which I also think is very telling when you think about what the Nation of Islam was saying. You know, like who should be approached and who shouldn't. But in terms of black nationalism, the Ahmadiyya had influence from the core over, and, and this was, again, is something that we started to talk about in, in an in a off-record conversation, but the um, 
Ahmadi were actively searching for a platform for their message. They were not above strategies. They were not above a bit of duplicity. They were not above manipulating. They just wanted to get their message across any way they could. And one of the things that I know in my dissertation, and others have as well, I'm not the only one, but um, the Ahmadiyya, they established a society in um, Woking, and they were active in London and Surrey, you know, different parts of England. And there, there's a relationship between um, uh, Khawaj Kamaluddin and uh, a guy named Deuce Muhammad Ali, and um, they were very, very close. And Deuce Muhammad Ali, of course, is also credited as being a mentor, an earlier mentor to Marcus Garvey. And so one of the things that my research suggests is that the Ahmadiyya actually attempted to influence Garvey once he took once his uh, profile increased and he, his career took off, you know, he became, his leadership became more well-known, that they tried to influence him through Deuce Muhammad Ali and through others. So um, the Ahmadi were right, they were operating within the nexus of not just anti-colonialism, but pan-Africanism, pan-Islamism, you know, um, anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism. So they were literally, I mean, in a hands-on type of way, because there are missionary groups that sent folks everywhere. I mean, you name a place. And in the late 19th and, and well into the 20th century, they, they were um, sending in missionaries. So they were attempting to influence other groups and other organizations. And of course, groups that had a black nationalist ethos were among them. But what I think that Farah's real influence with black nationalism, and I think, what is your term, like black godism? Or I think Farah's real influence comes after Farah has departed and comes through the nation of Islam itself. You know, I, I remember just doing interviews when I was doing my uh, master's uh, research on Temple Number no. 11 in Boston, and I was interviewing African Americans in Boston, whether they were Muslims or not. If they were in Boston between 1948 and 1958, I wanted to interview them. And what was interesting is everyone knew of the Nation of Islam. You know, everyone was aware of them and familiar. And the other thing that I didn't know until I started the research was that almost everyone had walked through the doors. And of course, this is a case study, microcosm. This is just Boston, but I believe it does have significant implications for the uh, macrocosm. And that is that almost everyone that I had spoken to, actually everyone without exception, had at some time or another either walked through the doors of Temple Number no. 11 or had attended an event sponsored by the Muslims, whether it was a play um, or a Ghana, um, or whether it was a public lecture with Honorable Elijah Muhammad, but, um, or whether it was actually subscribing to, and this of course is later in the 60s, um, uh, 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 um, goodness, uh, Muhammad Speaks, yes. Um, so uh, what I'm saying is I think Farad's influence or Fardian influence, I guess if we can, came out of the Nation of Islam. And that you definitely had, and there are others who could speak uh, much more intelligently on this and are much more well-informed on this than I am, but many of you had um, splinter groups, you had new groups where, you know, people started, brought their own message or their own understanding of both black nationalism and black religion, but they had some type of an affiliation or direct link with the Nation of Islam. They were familiar with the writings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and almost all of them were familiar in some form or fashion with the lessons, Nation of Islam catechism, and therefore with Farad himself and what Farad was writing. 
I don't know if that's a direct of a link as you're looking for, but I would say that the Nation of Islam itself was directly responsible for popularizing the persona man of W.D. Farad Muhammad, and that fraud was definitely influential for many non-Christians. And even the idea of a black god, I mean, you still had um, Father Divine, right? You had so many others. During this time, in the 20s and 30s, you have so many different responses to the problem of liberation coming from a theological and a religious perspective among African Americans. Uh, we've talked about the Ahmadiyya movement, their influence on, uh, on, on uh, Farad possibly and then the possible link from Farad to the Nation of Islam. I think there's still more for us to uncover there, and I think that our audience would be well served in, in doing their own research and you know, following some of the things that you've put out uh, yourself. But what's the takeaway from this research? How do we use what we've talked about today as a guide to our understanding and practice, what do you leave? What are your final words? My takeaway is probably less a statement or more a not plea or request. I don't want to make it that urgent, but I would say two things. One, I think that when we're looking at the Nation of Islam or thinking about the Nation of Islam, including Farad, including Honorable Elijah Muhammad, I think it's important to understand. And, and the Ahmadiyya come into this also, but I think it's important to understand the way that Islam itself was transformed in the American context or the North American context. So I think that if you look at Mirza Ghulam Ahmed and his initial goals and his mission, he wasn't trying to recreate Sunni Islam. As a matter of fact, he's not considered to be a Sunni Muslim. But he was attempting to cultivate an Islam that was free of Islamic orthodoxy. And I think that one takeaway is not so much a statement again, but a question, if that's true and if that was his goal, to what extent was he or was he not successful with Islam that took root or became rooted um, here in America, largely among African Americans. And then the second thing I would say is to be able to understand the trajectory of Islamic development in the United States. I think that I, I think it's really important to understand when we talk about the Nation of Islam that it's not a movement behind one person. So most people conceive of, and understandably, the Nation of Islam today as the people in rank and file behind Minister Louis Farrakhan. But there are many, many Americans who also consider themselves to be Muslim who would say that they are the Nation of Islam and they're not followers of Louis Farrakhan. So that's the other takeaway I would want to emphasize is just being able to understand the trajectory that you had this guy, this mysterious guy who comes into the American Midwest, who purports to teach them to what to reject from the poison book and what to be able to take with them, and who also offers them a new identity as righteous Muslims. And I think understanding that that trajectory basically resulted in the largest group of Americans ever to convert to Islam. And 
I think being able to understand that that group is part of the Nation of Islam or what was established in 1930 as the Allah Temple of Islam, I think that would be the biggest, I don't know if I can correctly call it a takeaway because I'm not sure how much of that I actually explicated in this conversation, but those would be the things I would want people, whether they understand that from what I'm saying or whether it's more research that they go on to do, I would want people to be able to ask and answer those questions for themselves if they're interested in the history of Islam in America. So for me, hearing about these things, the key here is that we see an original movement, if this connection is correct and accurate and true, and we see a movement that was responding to oppression and how religion was used. I don't want to say weaponized, but how it was actualized in a sense to free people. And we see that same thematic approach to religion here in America through the nation of Islam. And for me, the takeaway is that when people are oppressed and when there is an outside force that is attempting to strip them of their value, cause them to assimilate into the oppressed culture, that people of color throughout the world use their religion and their ancient traditions to fight back, not necessarily with a physical war, but with a war of the mind and with a war of the spirit. For I think it was Ghulam Ahmad who made the statement that the pen was mightier than the sword. And so I encourage all of our listeners to think about your reaction and response to oppression, especially in light of the things that we've been seeing in our world uh, most recently. How can you take your traditions, your religious belief systems, and actualize them for the freedom, the independence, the liberty, and justice for your people. Uh, Dr. Fatima Fanusi, I thank you for being with us today, for sharing your information and research and ideas. And from all of us here at Leading by History, we say to you, peace. So peace and salam alaikum, which is a peace be unto you. Thank you again for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Leading by History podcast. We look forward to getting back with you again. Until then, keep a leveled head and always investigate the sources. Peace.